0: Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed.
3: What would you imagine a dream holiday would be in the Romantic period? For many, including the famous writer Percy Bysshe Shelley, it was a trip up the famous Mount Vesuvius... To peer inside the volcano's bubbling core and experience a sensation known as the sublime. I spoke to John Brewer, author of Volcanic, to learn more about how the Romantics felt about Vesuvius, from viewing it as a holiday destination to a political metaphor. I'd like to start off by discussing the excavations themselves of the Roman towns of Herculaneum and Pompeii in the 18th century. Can you give us an overview of the discoveries that happened in this period?
2: Well, yes. Uh, What's interesting is that it's a very slow process. You have to understand that, I mean, it seriously started in the 1730s, but even by the early 19th century, a great deal of Pompeii was still unexcavated. So it's a very gradual process, and you can see it as happening through a series of stages in a way. Uh, what happens originally is there is an excavation in Herculaneum, and there what is discovered there are an enormous number of artifacts, and a kind of window is opened onto a different kind of antique world. One that's not made up of famous texts or big statues, but of ordinary life you know, things like surgical instruments, cooking implements, household goods, and so on. It's absolutely fascinating for antiquarians who are primarily the first audience for this. Uh, But then what happens is that in the mid-century, and this is the point actually at which Pompeii, which has largely been unexcavated, becomes uh, the focus of attention. And When that happens, one of the things that occurs is that numbers of bodies start to be found. Before the mid-century or about the mid-century, if you'd ask somebody how many people died in Pompeii, they would have said, well, we don't know very many, but a couple of hundred maybe. And it wasn't seen as a human tragedy. People knew from the classical texts, and especially from Livy's famous letter about the two phases of the eruption. They knew about that. They knew it was very destructive, but they didn't have a strong sense of it as a human tragedy. What happened in the 1760s and 1770s is that in Pompeii, they found groups of bodies and for the first time, they had a stronger sense of what the human cost actually was. There's a third phase, which is rather interesting in the early 19th century, which is that what you do is you put the objects with the people and you create stories. And it's interesting that although many of the bodies are discovered in the 1760s or 1770s, the stories about them really emerge in the early 19th century. And they become part of a kind of narrative story that we all sort of think we know about what happened in Pompeii. And it's a story about human tr- human tragedy. It, it's also a story about, about how th- the volcano has a kind of a punitive role. That what it does is, it, is that it punishes the wicked. And Pompeii is always, the it, you know, its wealth is exaggerated, so it's a luxurious place. You emphasize the fact that it's, that it's polytheistic, it's not monotheistic, it's not Christian, and that it's also depraved in various ways. And so what is happening in these stories is they're stories about a kind of vengeance. But at the same time, one of the things that these stories include are Christians. I mean, the most famous example of, of, of this is, you know, Bulwer-Lytton's *The Last Days of Pompeii*. But it draws on a whole large literature in this of disaster literature about uh, about the volcano, and what that does is it says the volcano is punishing the wicked but it is also punishing them in order to kind of sustain a, a kind of christian view a christian sensibility even though there isn't any evidence that there were many christians or any christians in pompeii at the time these cr- christians either escape as they do in Bulwer-Lytton's novel or even if they die as they often do in some of the paintings of the period they still felt to have a, they, they are christian and therefore there is a kind of resurrection And what's going on there really is a connection is being established between the sort of antiquity and modern Christian society. There's a continuity there. So that ironically, although... Vesuvius is the destroyer. It is also the conservator. It's what what creates continuity. And that's a deliberate contrast with an earlier Enlightenment view of the volcano on a volcanic eruption as being in some way natural, a natural purgative, which creates a better world through revolution. So during the French Revolution there are these plays and commentaries which portray the volcano as the destroyer of the ancien regime but it's, but it but it produces a new kind of fertility a new kind of world a new kind of kind of society. This episode is
1: brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match.
0: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot slash History Extra. Hola.
1: Hello. This call is being translated.
2: Abuela, listen to what my phone can do.
1: Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
0: Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
1: Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend.
0: Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije.
1: You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer.
3: And thinking about the volcano itself now, thinking about Mount Vesuvius, is it fair to say that these discoveries, these excavations, fundamentally changed how important the volcano was seen to be in romantic society?
2: I think that what is really important here is that the perception of what the volcano represented change radically. I mean, if you had asked a, a local in Naples, or even if you had asked an international savant who was interested in in the volcano from a scientific point of view earlier, and you said, well what's its most violent or terrible moment, most of them would have said 1631, which was a volcanic eruption that was almost as bad as the, as the classical eruption, but which for most commentators was a key moment in which not only was there an enormous amount of destruction and possibly even more people killed than happened earlier. But also, very importantly, from a Neapolitan point of view, is this is a moment at which it's widely believed uh, that San Gennaro, the patron saint of Naples, sort of appears in the sky and holds up his hand like a traffic cop to stop the eruption.
3: And moving away then from thinking of the excavations and the discoveries towards travel and how that relates to the volcano, I was really interested to read about the visitor's book that you discovered. Could you tell us a bit more about this?
2: Well, visitor's books were kept all over the early modern world. I mean, sites of pilgrimage or or special sites or there are very large numbers of them in Switzerland, for example. And if you went across the Alps and you went to the Saint Bernard pass then you would sign a book and what these books are is essentially they're books that invite travelers to make comments in return for various forms of hospitality and the Vesuvius one was kept in a little hermitage which is still there halfway up the mountain, And you went there and you signed the book. Not everybody signed the book. Lots of people didn't. But still, we get a picture from this and a, quite a remarkable picture of a kind of incredibly variegated clientele of people coming from all over the world and of different social standing and, and, and so on. So these books are pretty rare. And they're also, though, books that historians don't like very much. And they don't like them because they don't tell a, sto- a story. What they do is they give you a series of names and, you give, and they give you a kind of plethora of anecdotes. People write little comments, but rarely do people write extensive comments. A few people do. A few people do. But you can piece together from their commentary how they think about what they're doing, where they're from, how they think about the other people who are there, how they relate to the guides and to the travel system that exists, and, and all of those different elements. What you don't get is a kind of considered long narrative about my experience of Vesuvius and so on. You don't actually need to describe it in the book because everybody can just stick their head out of the window and see it. They do describe, however, of course, how they feel about it, what their reactions are, what their response is, but they don't go in for for extended description. So, what were people's reactions in climbing and going up to the top of Vesuvius? Well, Primarily, their reaction can be described as as a a sublime response to the experience, although it's a bit more complicated than that because Vesuvius was part of a kind of repertoire of experiences that you could enjoy, which which were emotional responses to nature. And the emotional response you had to the erupting volcano And I should add that one of the features of the volcano in the period I'm writing about is that it's almost always a little bit bubbling, a little bit erupting, but not very dangerous. So it's a great object of excitement without real danger. It's like going to see a horror movie or something. You know, you know you're actually relatively safe. But what you do is you go up to the top, you look into the crater, and you see this bubbling, mass of uh, which is red and, and and lava and so on and you you are in awe then what you're supposed to do is go back down the volcano and you look towards to the north towards the bay of naples and you see the city you see the fields the vineyards and you see civilization and you see a beautiful prospect and that gives you a different kind of emotional feeling so in the guidebooks that are written in the period, you, this is more or less a kind of script that you uh, have, to f- have to follow. So it's a diff- there are different kinds of emo- emotions involved. And it's also somewhat different for the Italians who are do- going up the mountain because they are different from everybody else if they're Neapolitan because they're used to the idea of eruption. I mean, in this period, if you grew up, you've probably witnessed a very large number of of eruptions. It's part of normal life. I mean, I'm not saying it isn't sometimes dangerous or worrying, but you have a kind of expected response. And actually what you probably do if you're going up the mountain is that you spend your time eating and feasting and celebrating the saints who are supposed to protect you from the bad aspects of, of, of the mountain. So your response is somewhat different from the long distance traveler who may or may not have read guidebooks and so on that orchestrate this sort of feeling.
3: So I'd like to come back now to The Visitor's Book, because Mm -hmm. you mentioned that it gives us an insight into the kinds of people that visited, with the caveat being, of course, we only know who signed their names in the book. Can you tell us more about the kinds of people that visited? Do they, for instance, fit into the stereotype of the grand tourist?
2: Well, they don't. There are grand tourists, quite a number of them, and a number of them are famous. But I think what we get in The Visitor's Book is people who are not local and not tourists. There's a sort of category of person who is in Naples for other kinds of reasons and who ends up going to visit the volcano. So the classic example of this would be the Swiss mercenaries who are in Naples because the regiments are hired by the Neapolitan monarch to actually provide a kind of domestic police force. And they're an off... The, the officers of that of the, those regiments spend a lot of time on the mountains. They love mountains they're Swiss and they have drinking clubs and and so on but they're not there as tourists so they're well imagine you know you're a you're a publisher, and this week you're in Frankfurt right You go to Frankfurt because it's part of your job, but if you're not spending your time one uh, of these incredible liquid parties that they hold there, but you decide that you're going to the Städel, which is the you know one of the finest museums in Europe, and you go to the museum. Are you a tourist? What are you exactly? You're this different kind of person. So there are all sorts of groups of people on Vesuvius. Soldiers, sailors, diplomats, local business people, travellers, and so on.
3: I was really surprised to read that so many women and children went could you tell us a bit more about their experiences?
2: There are many many family parties and both women and children tend on the whole to go in these family family parties. The the kids are thought of as not really sufficiently mature to be able to understand the sensation of the sublime, their, their reactions are likely to be either more irreverent, as a wonderful anecdote in the book of four French boys pissing into the crater, uh, which doesn't show much kind of aesthetic appreciation, or all of, the, all of them being very frightened. And this sort of intermediate position in which you have a thrill, but you know that you're safe, is, is harder f- for them. They're in family parties. The women are more numerous than one might imagine. It's difficult because it's clear that very often a a male head of household signed the book and didn't necessarily put the women in. So there may be an, an underestimate. But there are quite a number of cases of women who pride themselves on their independent, intrepid, behavior i mean they're frightened and so on like many people but they nevertheless see this and i i i don't know how far i can push this but i see that it's a sort of space it's not a drawing room it's not it's not a domesticated space or whatever it is somehow a space where the rules are much less clear and in which there is an opportunity for some women to assert themselves so so there are a group of three sisters who Are often on the mountain, one of whom is really quite an important figure. And there are lots of women amateur geologists. They're in the book when they go up in family parties, but I know from other evidence that they're there on the mountain on their own, collecting rocks or examining things or sending reports to people so that there's more participation than you might think.
3: So in that answer, John, you mentioned these women who were amateur geologists. Can you tell us more about the volcano's relationship with science yes. and the earth sciences in particular during this period?
2: Well, you need to recall that in the science about the history of the earth, the volcano is for a long time thought of as very marginal. It's like a, a pimple. It doesn't really affect the body as a whole. Whereas what happens in the... Uh, Second half of the 18th century is people come to realise that processes of heat uh, become more and more important in the way in which the, the world is configured and made, and scientists, well, I call like I call them savants because the words the term scientist is an early 19th century coinage, but these savants uh, in the 1770s. They're all carrying out research in different parts of, of Europe and, and the New World, and they come to realize that there are common patterns in the shaping of landscape, landscape which are volcanic. And that means that there's more and more interest in volcanoes, not simply as spectacles to be admired, but as, as objects of investigation to help try and explain the, the history of the, of the Earth. I mean, nearly all the volcanoes that exist, there are about 1,500 now that were known active ones. Uh, By the early 19th century, they know of nearly all of them, and they're all being studied. But Vesuvius, because it's so close to a major city, it's close to the third largest city in Europe, uh, it's a place that you can get to very easily. It's very active, so it's changing, so you can do lots and lots of science scientific work. So it becomes known as a kind of laboratory of nature that people can use. It's all part of a general fascination with the history of the earth that really develops in the, from the 1770s o- onwards, which means that there are very large numbers of geological societies. It's uh, a popular thing to collect. Crystal collecting and, and rock collecting is very powerful.
3: So, coming on now to the practicalities of walking up the mountain, Mm -hmm. of walking up Vesuvius, you mentioned that the role of guides are key here. Mm -hmm. Can you introduce us to some of them? Because they're quite colourful characters, aren't they?
2: Well, yes. I mean, the, the most interesting guide is a guy called Salvatore Madonna. And he is somebody who, in the early 19th century, he comes from a family of guides, but he comes to dominate the guide's trade. And he does it by, setting, by acting as a kind of intermediary, most people, when they go to go up Vesuvius, they go to Racina, what is modern Herculaneum, and they go into a kind of courtyard or and try and find a guide. There are lots and lots of them all over the place. There's all kinds of bargaining and going on and shouting and so on. And then some of the printed guides and people in Naples start saying, look, don't don't do this. It's terrible. You know, go to Salvatore and he will negotiate. First of all, he'll negotiate all the prices. And secondly, he'll organize everything for you. So he has a, a whole kind of extended operation. I mean, his daughter runs the the rock shop so that, you know, when you come down, you can buy souvenirs of the uh, from the volcano. His sons sell wine, which they have in bottles halfway up the, the volcano. And he negotiates with people who will then take you probably on an ass or a donkey up to near to the point where the hermitage is, where the book is. And sometimes you can even get beyond that. But once you get to the cone, you have to climb this yourself. And you can do this in several ways. You can just do it on your own, which is very, very strenuous. Or you can be dragged up by a group of guides. One guide puts a strap around you and sort of pulls you up from the front. And another one sort of pushes your bum from behind and gets you up there. Or you can go on a thing called a portiana, which is a kind of um, sedan chair, but it's open. And you can be carried up. But I, I can't imagine what that must have been like because you'd be tilting back and forth all the time. I think I'd much, much rather, rather walk. But it's quite a strenuous thing. And, and many people comment on how extraordinarily difficult it is. People who have climbed big mountains and, and so on. So it's not a very long final ascent, but it's a, it, it's a difficult one until, of course, you get the developments of tourism in the 19th century when they build the famous funicular and the train lines come in and Cook takes over the whole operation. So that, you know, whereas early on with these guides, you have this, Strange relationship, but quite personal relationship with them in which you you depend your safety and so on because they know which way to go, whether something is dangerous or not, how you should how you should be treated they also know where the best souvenirs and the best rocks are they could do all of that that, but once the tourists system takes over, it removes these people. You get on the train, you go on the train, or you go on the road which Thomas Cook and company actually own. So if you if you do use the road and you're an ordinary traveller, you have to pay unless you're a, a, a customer of Cook. Then you get to the bottom of the cone and there is a A restaurant with English waiters and god forbid English food and you can have buy a postcard which is then franked there so you can show that you've actually been there then you get in the funicular which takes you up to the top and then when you get to the top you've got 100 yards or so to go before you're at the cone so the whole experience becomes different and is sort of marketed as comfortable Whereas nobody is marketing this romantic experience earlier in the 19th century as comfortable. You know, it's like adventure holidays or something. That's what you're in for.
3: And for the final portion of our conversation then, I'd like to move away from thinking about those visiting the volcano to think about the volcano's impact on romantic society. And you touched on this at the start of our conversation, but I was hoping you could draw out for us slightly more how Vesuvius was co-opted as a political metaphor in the period.
2: Well, as I've already said, in the French Revol- during the French Revolution, it becomes this sort of symbol of creative destruction. And then there is this competition about how it, it should be in, envisioned, and that's the primary way in which. But it's also there is also a kind of politics within Naples about the volcano, and there are people who are reformers and who are wanting to promote science and education, and also very interested in in a more liberal constitutional regime, many of whom are connected to the scientific institutions. And they try to use Vesuvius as a way of projecting an idea of Naples as a modern scientific center. And in this, uh, a man called Theodoro Monticelli, who is the head of this, the secretary of the scientific academy, he's involved in coordinating all over the world and all over, well, all over Europe, the Americas, research into, into Vesuvius, he's sending examples here, there and everywhere, he's exchanging rocks. I mean, he's made a noble both in Brazil and in Denmark for his work as a kind of scientist in Naples. So he's one of the key figures in the sort of internationalization of all of this.
3: So for my final question for you today then, John, what can Vesuvius tell us about romantic society more broadly?
2: Well, I think it can tell you that romantic society is politically divided, that it's extremely mobile, and that it's preoccupied with the relationship between nature and culture, whether it be at the level of you know wanting aesthetic experience, but also of thinking about the processes of politics and society as being analogous to, or even illuminated by, natural processes and natural forces.
3: was John Brewer. His latest book, Volcanic, Vesuvius in the Age of Revolutions, is published by Yale University Press and out now.
0: Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.